presented by the American Petroleum Institute. Good morning, everyone. I'm Playbook co-author Ryan Lizza. It's Wednesday, August 2nd, and there's only one thing driving the day today, perhaps the year, and that is the indictment of Donald Trump over his efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Joining me to discuss this new indictment of Donald Trump is legal affairs reporter Kyle Cheney, who, as always, is up to the minute on the details of this case. Kyle, good morning. You have actually been hanging out at the courthouse, uh, not just yesterday, but for, for days now waiting for this indictment, haven't you? That's right. Uh, we, we got a sense, you could, you know, some of it's a little bit abstract, but, but you could tell this investigation was winding down for a while. And so really for the last two weeks, we've been camped out there uh, watching the grand jury, waiting to see when they were going to make their march to the, uh, the magistrate judge to hand up an indictment. And, you know, the, the crescendo built uh, to Tuesday when we all pretty much expected it was coming uh, and were proven right uh, at long last at the end of the day. Kyle, let's take a step back to start with and give the the broad picture of what this indictment says, and then we'll dig into the some of the most significant details and talk a little bit about what comes next. So the indictment is 45 pages, uh, and you can get a lot in 45 pages. I mean, this is a sweeping narrative that with Trump at the center, and I actually think it's somewhat significant that the six co-conspirators that they mentioned in this indictment, they don't name them. So Trump is the only name in this indictment. Is they are making it clear that this entire scheme to subvert the election is about Donald Trump. Kind of like the January 6th committee said, this is about one man. I was just going to say, that's right. Very, very Trump-focused. And, and, and I mean, that's one of my takeaways is the, the indictment tracks extremely closely with the January 6th committee's report. So much of what's in this indictment, we knew already from the January 6th committee. Now, Jack Smith and his prosecutors, they got m- more than what the January 6th committee did. They were able to pierce executive privilege, attorney-client privilege in various ways. But what ended up in this indictment, maybe in a slight to a slight degree, went beyond the January 6th committee, but not uh, and broad strokes. I mean, th- this is a narrative we're familiar with. If we watched those hearings, if we followed the committee, uh, and, and a lot of what they reported bore out. That's a really interesting point, Colin. I think you'll agree, perhaps, with some of the other legal analysts who argue that absent the January 6th committee, we might not have gotten to this point. Uh, the January 6th committee, in other words, spurred the Department of Justice in, into action. You know, I, I I'm actually more skeptical of that point than a lot. I understand I understand where that point comes from, um, but I do think that a lot more was happening quietly uh, at DOJ than is acknowledged, uh, and the January 6th committee was certainly happening in parallel. And I do think the public's understanding and the public urgency behind this was fueled by the January 6th committee, and in some ways that may have spurred DOJ to keep pressing forward. Um, I think I think the fact that in so much of this indictment is not a surprise, is is a credit to the January 6th committee for forcing so much of this out into the public domain. Okay, you, you said, Kyle, that a lot of what's in here isn't new. We, we've known it before, and certainly someone like you who's covering this extremely closely knew it before. Um, when you were reading this indictment, what were the things that really struck you as, wow, all right, they got that detail. We didn't know that before. This tells you the, the power of the, the grand jury system to, uh, to extract this level of detail that even uh, you know, Congress wasn't able to get. 
So, I mean, a, a few things struck, struck me in the, in the specifics. Um, you know, you'd see things like f- from Vice President Pence's contemporaneous notes of a conversation, but the, 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 we've never seen those notes. The January 6th committee never saw those notes, but the prosecutors certainly have seen those notes of Pence's interactions with Donald Trump. You know, there are certain text messages that, that Rudy Giuliani, one of the co-conspirators, uh, in this case, we're sending to state legislators, state legislative leaders uh, that we know the January 6th committee did not see or or, or, or may not have seen. Um, you know, there's one exchange that jumped out to me where Pat Philbin, the deputy White House counsel who didn't do a formal interview with the January 6th committee, he's meeting with Jeff Clark, who Donald Trump has just actually appointed to be the acting attorney general. Again, something the January 6th committee didn't fully confirm. Uh and you know Trump later rescinded that appointment, but for a brief moment, it appears Jeff Clark was appointed the acting attorney general, and he's talking to Pat Philbin, and Pat Philbin says, you know, you're leaving this office on January 20th no matter what, and if you try to stay in power beyond that, there's going to be riots in the streets. And uh, Jeff Clark apparently responded to Philbin and said, that's why we have an insurrection act. Um, that exchange was new and eye-opening about Jeff Clark's mindset, assuming it's, you know, Proven, proven true. It's an allegation, um, but what was something we hadn't heard before. And finally, Kyle, the defense. An indictment is always the strongest on its first day before uh, a defense appears. Um, we've gotten some glimpses into what the defense might be. If you can describe what the contours are right now of the of the Trump defense and what how strong you think it is. So I heard of two sort of avenues of defense that I think we'll hear a lot more about. Um, the main one, and Trump has already flicked at this in, in one of his true social posts, was advice of, advice of counsel, that basically all everything he was doing was guided by the lawyers around him and how can he be criminally responsible for what lawyers were telling him was okay to do. Um, this comes up a lot in politically sensitive cases like this. Uh, courts have different standards for how they judge that. In this case, what I think is extremely fascinating and may have been strategic is that Jack Smith, five of the co-conspirators, we just went through them, are lawyers, are the very lawyers Trump would probably say were the ones advising him. (laughs) That's a good point. So this is like, you know, Gotti being indicted, but his lawyer too. (laughs) Right, right. And so essentially Trump's going to say, well, I was... I was, uh, you know, relying on John Eastman's advice. Well, yeah, of course you were. You were in the co- you were in the conspiracy with him. So it kind of defangs that in some ways, and and maybe make it ha- makes it harder for him. The lawyers who were not named as co-conspirators, they were the ones telling Trump, "You can't do this. You lost. Stop. Stop." <laughs> and and so I don't know, if, you know, that advice of counsel defense may be under threat because of the way this indictment is structured. The second strain, then, is his lawyer. Uh, John Laurel was on TV last night saying this was that you know Trump really believed the election was stolen, um, and you know you, you have to prove he, in his view, and I'm not sure this holds up, is you have to prove that uh, Trump actually knew that the election that what he was saying was false, and you know the indictment is full of that. It says Trump knowingly provided you know lied about X, Y, and Z claims of fraud, and he knowingly lied to Pence. He knowingly told people false things. Um, and and if they're going to push that, well, Trump really believed this stuff against all odds, um, that changes the mindset from a criminal mindset to one where he was doing what he thought he was supposed to do. Um, I'm not sure that's going to hold much water here, A, because the, you know, 
at some point when every single person of, of, with any legitimacy is telling you you lost, this is wrong, this is false, it's not true, and then you immediately go out and say the opposite, um, it doesn't, it, you know, it's hard to say, well, I was just, you know, uh, doing what I believed. Kyle, thank you very much for helping us understand this. Really appreciate it. Of course, happy to do it, and we'll, we'll learn a lot more soon, I think. And for your schedule today, the House and the Senate are out. President Biden has no public events on his schedule today, but we will be watching to see if he comments on the Jack Smith indictment. And Politico has a new podcast about to hit your feeds. Politico Tech launches today, and it's your daily download on the disruption that technology is bringing to politics and policy. Today, Stephen Overly interviews the White House's microchip man, Ronnie Chatterjee. And upcoming guests include Senator Todd Young and Hollywood filmmaker Justine Bateman. You can find Politico Tech wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. The Biden administration says it wants American companies to ramp up oil production. Their policy announcements tell another story. A year's delay in finalizing a leasing program for offshore energy. New restrictions and only a single round of onshore lease sales this year. Protracted timelines for project permits and overlapping federal guidelines. Let's make American energy the priority that it needs to be to deliver an affordable, reliable, and cleaner energy future.